Hello, I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. QW. Q double dog double down. W. <laughs> JB. So funny thing, I um I stopped by the store the other day. The store? The store, the the Moto Corsa store. Yep. Where you sell the motos and the courses. Yep. Lots of courses. And and I noticed you guys have acquired a rather delectable Desmo Sidici. Yeah. Do you see a lot of those come through? No. We've got a couple in the shop now. The one for sale and then uh, the one of the owners of the conglomerate or whatever it is that it's the dealership. All the it's Tonkin dealership, so the one Tonka of, Tonk. Tonkins. One of the Tonkins owns one and it's sitting right next to his Supermono, which is covered up and in the back and you just wouldn't know it's there. That's kind of a shame in a way. It's horrible. I would love to see it um, displayed proudly, but I, I don't know. I can't pretend to understand what's what's going on with that. I know that they're looking at um, redoing the showroom soon, and maybe having those bikes displayed will be part of it. I'm not sure. Having a super mono has turned into a thing, though. All right, Desmond Sidici's, yes, they're rare, but they're not super mono rare really because right? you gave me some grief in the last episode about the rarity of a desmond sedici yeah well they are rare but not as rare as a super mono That's there's like enough. 70 super monos yeah. right yeah. so 7 billion people 70 super monos right <laughs> it's uh it's not too many so they're worth in the in the hundred they are six figure bikes now well into the six figures almost to two hundred thousand. i would say i don't think i think that's probably too extreme but People are buying them for, there has been a couple sold for uh, quite a bit. So, Supermoners are rare. Desmond Sedici's, they're, they're out there. They're now in the mid-50s for a really nice one. 50 to 55 seems to be about where they're going, you know. So, we'll see, you know, what, what comes of that. For, for a bike that was originally listed for, I believe it was 65, and then they bumped it up to 72, you know what I mean? If you were an early one, if you got in on the er- the first tranche of bikes, you were able to get it at 65. And then when they offered more up, which I think was at the, uh, at the very... This is when they add the extra thousand. Yeah, and a bunch of people got all poopy about it. I get a little poopy about it too. I don't know. Whatever. If I bought a bike thinking that I was getting one of 500 and then all of a sudden I realize it's one of 1500. If if I'm a... I, I, would, I would have to preface like, like collectors are kind of weird dudes. Like they're into some weird stuff. As far as like the specifics of the bike. So I could see like there being three times as many of those motorcycles all of a sudden being an issue to that kind of person. Yeah, but still three times as many being only 1500s in the world. That, not like it's 1500 in the U.S. I think that's you and I talking. I think it's a completely different issue to someone yeah, sure. that's that's in that realm. Oh, I know. I've, I saw plenty of angry communications, people that were all poopy about the fact that their bike all of a sudden was devalued. And it's like, no, it's not. It's not that bad. I just disagree. Yeah. Well, that's the reason I kind of bring this up because I got in a good conversation with the salesman there, uh, Jason and Christian, about motorcycles as an investment and, and kind of what we were talking mostly yeah, about what sure. the Desmos Adichis have been doing over the last few years. But it kind of got like a broader topic and I posted something on Facebook about it regarding like, you know, if you were collecting bikes, which bikes would you want to get? And I kind of started looking at kind of like the numbers of 
what would that look like in a classical investment sort of way? Sure. Instead of just passionate, because when I, when you listed that on Facebook, it was kind of like, what is, look, what I got out of it was, which, what do you really want? Not, what would you buy to make money on, right? And that would probably be an interesting question to ask. I probably should have asked that. But yeah, you're, you're right. I, I, I asked just straight up, what would be your top five collectible motorcycles? And we got pretty wide range of answers. Yeah, but, but most of them are sport oriented because most of the people that are in our circles are sport yeah, Self-selecting bias. Sure. But that, you know, if, if I think about the people that I know that are into collecting motorcycles, frankly, most people that have the means are older, so they're into older machines, whether that be 50s, 60s, 70s, or some cases, teens, right? Um, so that, I don't know many people that own a, you know, a board track racer, but I've seen a couple of these board track racers, a Cyclone or a Merkel. We're talking half a million, million dollars for some of these rare board tracks from the teens, 20s, whatever. Um, it'd be interesting to look up a Bonhams collection, like what was sold last year. I know there was a pretty gnarly one. I know one of those yellow Cyclones blew my mind because we're, we're just talking about a bike that was made 100 years ago. And all it was made to do was go around in circles on a board track, right? So that's a fascinating thing. But that's one level. Then the next would be, I don't know, uh, that era of four-cylinder Indians or Hendersons. or I mean, there's so many different old... I mean, there's hundreds upon hundreds. Of, when At the incipient stage of the motorcycle industry, where there's so many people who are making cool, interesting bikes. So many bikes to, to choose from. So you'd get somebody... I, I forget the guy's name, but it's the Vintagent. Have you ever seen the Vintagent? He's a... He's a known online resource for looking up cool, interesting older bikes. And I know he has a website. So that would be a person to talk to you about. Like, okay, what ancient bike would be a cool bike to go buy that I might be able to retain my money or make a lot of money on? I mean, where's the speculation market on motorcycles, right? I don't know. Well, that's the hard thing. I mean, that's that's kind of what I was looking at. I think you bring up an interesting point, like, you know, some of these bikes that were built in the the early 20th century, you know, now they're going for serious money. Um, but yeah, it's that idea of like, you know, so you invest that money then and what's it worth now? And it's, yeah, it's, it's a significant value. I don't know if it's millions, but it's, it's a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Eventually it could co compound quite well, especially if you happen to be fortunate with uh, a stock that you bought. Right. Yeah. I think it's something I've definitely been been thinking about doing a story on and sit down and like look at just, okay, well, if you just did like a mutual fund, if it just followed the, sure. the trend of the market, you didn't have to be particularly good at investing. No. Look at what kind of inflation was doing and see where those things you would You could be kind of like a sheep of Wall Street um, instead yeah. of a wolf. I definitely, I don't know if I would be any sort of... A badger. You'd want to be a badger of Wall Street. That'd be pretty cool to be a badger. Okay. Badger right. of anything would be pretty cool. Yeah, sure. I was going to say like a seagull. I'd be a fucking seagull. <laughs> but that's like a band or something. I don't know. Right. Okay. But, but it's just an interesting idea because I, I see some people talk about like, oh, that'd be a good investment. That bike could be a good investment. Like, oh, a Desmo. That was kind of the conversation. Like, oh, this Desmo would be a good investment. And you're like, well, if you bought a Desmo Sudici brand new when they came out in 2008, two, 2008 2007. And plunk down your seventy-two grand. Obviously, you've already lost uh, quite a bit of money, and and they seem to be coming back in value. But it's this idea: like, is there, like, I was looking at like the Honda RC thirty, or Honda RC forty-five, and like what they were. These going are for. homologation specials that were built back when it was necessary to win a superbike championship, specifically in the world, to make bikes that were special 
and you had to homologate them. So you had to make a certain amount of them uh, and you would try and do that. You would, you would make them super special by adding various components that, or even just the whole thing as a chassis, say an RC30, which was a V4, 750cc, single-sided swing arm, sport bike. Well, Honda made a VFR 750 at the same time, but that was a, almost a touring machine compared to an RC30. So they, they had to have the RC30 or they needed to to get to the sharp end because some of the other competitors were making bikes that were way more race than street. And that wasn't necessarily what Honda was doing for the street. So that was one. Then at the about the same time, Yamaha made the OW01, which, you know, there was an FZR 750R or FZR 750 uh, at the time. Well, this was the FZR 750RR OW01. That's just the nomenclature they used. And it had, um, it was quite a, bo- a bit trickier than a normal FZR. The Kawasaki even gotten into it, but it was they were less identifiable. They would just make a ZX7RR instead of a ZX7R, and it would have flat slide carbs and a cup uh, instead of uh, constant velocity carbs, and it would have a couple other things that were like it would have a single tail section instead of a, a bi-post a tail side, whatever. It would it was not as extreme as a Honda RC30, which was a bespoke, no shared parts thing. Whereas the ZX7 was a lot of the shared parts, a similar setup. Um, Suzuki really didn't have that much going on at that time. I think they had a couple of specials, but they were nothing like the Yamaha and the Honda. So those bikes are very from a from a for our age group or close. These were the seminal collectorish bikes of that era, right? That was the ones to have. Uh, and and so an RC30 now, if it's clean and stock, it, it they're they're worth $40,000, which is mind-blowing to me. I'm looking at it like, holy crap, $40,000. That's a lot of money for a bike that's that old. But when it when you think about it, unfortunately, it's not, right? That was kind of blew my mind relative to inflation. So are you looking up the numbers? On what? Yeah, I'm just crunching the numbers now. So that was, what, 1990-ish? Yeah, uh, about. So fifteen grand. I About, I, yeah. I'm pretty sure because I, I, I did a quick research and I, I didn't – Bring my notes with me to the show, so you know, fifteen slap, grand a time. Slap and keep, my wrist with a ruler, no doubt. But keep in mind, at that time, you could buy six hundred for about five grand. Yeah, so that's a you know that's a significant pop. It's yeah, not a cheap bike, but just on inflation alone, just on inflation alone, buying power today, that's twenty seven grand. Yeah, and so and I was doing a little research. I saw some for for thirty ish. Yeah, sure. So it's like one of the things you kind of sit there and you're like just on like like and that's the thing like the RC30 is such a great example because it is such a kind of coveted collector bike, and you look at it and you're like probably would have lost your shirt on it. Now maybe if you could pick one up, you know, 1995 or whatever, 1992, used low miles, and then you sat on it because that's that's the part where it's sure. like it's twofold. It's this idea of buying the bike brand new, taking the hit on appreciation when you rolled it off the dealer lot, and then watching the value pick back up versus you know buying it used or getting it secondhand at a lower value where it's and kind of already hate, just hit being a, an appreciating asset right and that's and that's kind of like the thing that brought up like the desmos edition because it's been interesting because they were down like in the 40s not too long ago sure so you could kind of arbitrage 30s. wow they I mean, were i didn't see any for 30 but yeah they had been they dipped pretty yeah you know so you can arbitrage that kind of market effect and and that makes it kind of collectible but for me there's very much this like myth of like like 
classic cars and classic motorcycles are being like, oh, that's a that was a good investment, that was a good buy, and you know, all the time, like we start crunching the numbers, like at least for the ones I've been looking at, not necessarily the case, and the ones that that ended up being a good buy are really kind of like the 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 rarities, the diamonds in the rough, where it's like you either had to have an amazing insight that that particular model, that particular bike was going to be uh, something that was going to gain incredible value over the years or have something special attached to it. Because I think for every one of those, like, you could probably point out 10 more that just did nothing or, or lost value. Sure. Well, in the, the Supermono, the Ducati Supermono was a very extreme example. So a bike that was made purely for racing, not for street. It was made in the mid '90s, and there was only 70 of them. And Pierre there was Pierre a Blanche. there was a couple of different. Yeah, it was one of the only times Pierre Tier Blanche created a shape that is universally loved. Yeah, there's not really many people that look at a Supermono and say, "Ew," right? Yeah, it's a pretty shape, and whereas a lot of the stuff he's created has been very polarizing. We, right? we should we should preface so like Ducati years. We're talking the original Hypermotard, the 999 series. The key is the 999 series. The Multistrada. Yeah, the early Multistrada. The first Multistrada, yeah. I should say. But the key for most people <clears throat> to understand is that this is the guy that de designed the 999 series, which most people will readily admit is one of the ugliest motorcycles that's ever graced the earth. And some people love it, right? Yeah, I've got a couple of buddies that are are super into them. They think they're beautiful. It's definitely designed for me. That it that is like a it's like a wine. It gets better with every year I look at it. I enjoy it more and more and more. And for me, but it I, only looks good in black or in race trim, and that's it. Hmm, that's interesting. I think, uh, I think, I think I get it. I get it from both sides because I totally get as like if you were coming from like the nine sixteen, yeah, nine nine eight, really, right? You know, which is that same nine sixteen, and look. then book ended by a ten nine eight, and yeah, and you're kind of like, huh? So anyway, what that happened there. So that's Pierre Terblanche, one of his first things, but it was also in conjunction with current CEO Claudio Domenicali, uh, who at the time was really deep into the racing and deep into uh, design engineering uh, at Ducati in that early 90s. And I think it was a fairly young guy. And I, I think that was one of his pet projects. So that was a, a tour de force bike, but made in small numbers to race in something called the Bears series, British American racing, something I can't remember. I've said this before on a yeah. previous podcast. It Way always back. gets me. So anyway, uh, that that was Bears series. Same, the uh, Britons were in it, the Saxon Triumph, a lot of weird uh, non four cylinder. You got to remember, this is an era when the four cylinders, four stroke four cylinders were pretty much th the bike. Anything, 600s, 750s. This was pre 1000cc superbikes. So to have weirdo stuff on the side was all, always interesting and very cool because enthusiasts got into, you know, twins and singles. So the super mono was just rare. They didn't, they decided not to make a lot of them which I think is very sad. It's unfortunate. So that's extremely red. So that's numbers driven. It's driven by the fact that there are so few. Um, but, you know, will a Super Legera have the same? Because it's, how many were there? 500 of Super Legeras? yeah. So 500 Super Legeras, it's not a Desmond Sedici though, right? It's it's a, it's, you look, you put it, you park it next to a, an 1199 Panigale and it's the same bike, Right. You can't, it's hard to tell the differences for, for most people. I look at it like that is so much trickier. It's not even funny. That's one of the coolest motorcycles Ducati's ever made, bar none. Way better than a Desma Sedici as a riding machine. Well, right? and you should, pre you should, you should say that, or we should acknowledge the fact that when the Desmo Sedici came out, like even it was 999 era, right? 
2008 was the first year of the 1098. Right? Or sorry, second year of the 1098. So it was 07 to 08. And when it, that was when it came out. And it was announced a lot earlier than that. Okay. Cuz I'm getting my I'm getting my dates confused. Whatever whatever year it was, the production sport bike, like the R-Spec, taken on the track and it was faster than the Desmos Adichie, the GP bike. Oh, sure. A 1098R? Yeah. Would just wipe its ass with the Desmos Adichie. No matter what you did to a Desmo, it just wouldn't even be close. But the bike didn't sound like a V4. And that's, and that's always it didn't the, look like that. Yeah, and that's always been the thing with me and the Desmo Sidici versus the Superleggera. It was like, the Superleggera is the bike I want to ride. The Desmo Sidici is the bike I want to own. Like That's the one like I just want to like sit there and look at it for hours on end. Whereas like, and, and I should preface, the Superleggera up close, especially with its fairings off, is amazing you can spend hours looking at every little detail that they've because they put a lot of time and energy into making every little part as light well, as possible we know we saw that on asphalt and rubber a few years ago <laughs> very clearly yeah much too uh ducati chagrin i believe that might be why i'm not at too many press launches for them <laughs> so the that bike if we go back to the continue or back to the top how we're the the flow of the conversation is well what what is good about buying that bike? You buy a bike, say right now, if you bought the Desmond CG for fifty thousand, well, I'd, I'd want a deal. I'd want it like forty five ish. Yeah, that wouldn't happen, right? Because <laughs> as from a dealer standpoint, we own it. We'd just be sitting, and just waiting, because it's it is an appreciating asset, even if it's a small amount, even if it's just incremental. Uh, the lore of those bikes will continue to go up because they are so sexy, right? They do look amazing and they do sound cool. And so even if you did just fire it up once or twice a year. It's it's a, a a very soul invigorating machine, right? Even though it might not go as fast around track, who cares at this stage? But boy, when those things came out, it was amazing. Especially up here in the Northwest, how many people took them to the track, right? Right off the bat, because they're gnarly. They were fast, just not. They just didn't handle that well, right? That was the thing. It didn't handle poorly. It just didn't handle like what most people imagined it would handle, and it didn't feel like a normal Ducati. Although maybe now, after like seeing like so much, you know, time in retrospect, maybe maybe it did handle exactly like a Ducati GP bike. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But no, that, that thing was so far no, fair enough from being a Ducati GP well, bike. And, th and that's the thing. That's the thing that I think that that's important to preface before we go any further. Is like this is the Desmond Cici RR, the or the D16, as I think the Brits like to call it, is is very different than its race bike predecessor they look very Every similar single they have part. some kind of the same ethos but yeah they're the, i don't think there's a single part of commonality no, nothing yeah yeah no. it was industrialized yeah. i mean those those race bikes if you go to the factory you'll see the lineup of race bikes in a very specific room and right outside of that you'll see an engine on a stand it's i mean it's so different on every level it's a v4 right it's a ninety degree V four. There it is. That's yeah. it. That's the only. That's the only thing that's analogous. And it says it. Ducati on the side of it. That's it. So the engine had to be. I mean, because you can't create the an engine like that that's made to go through a five hundred kilometer rebuild cycle or something like that, right? To like one race weekend or two, uh, and and make that so that it's going to work on the street. And and they barely got it to work even as is on the street. Well, so now that's the interesting thing. If we fast forward in time and come to the Honda. RC twenty one three VS, yeah, yeah, which very much is that MotoGP engine. I mean, like that's that's almost. I bet it's a lot closer than the Ducati by like a long shot. Oh sure. yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I the materials the might be a little there. different, but like 
Yeah. 80, 90% there. Absolutely. Especially when you pump it out at 100 horsepower, it'll last a really long time that way. <laughs> well, seriously. <laughs> no, right? No, I'm not even joking. Right, you're right. So if the Desmond Sedici came out, and it did, it came down, it, it came out under horsepower by a lot. That target for that engine designed with the ports and the valves and the bore stroke ratio of the Desmond Sedici RR street bike target would be 16,000 RPM. And it would, it, it should rev to that at, with those specifications. And if it was doing that, it would make probably 220 horsepower more like a lot. It was, that was, it was not far from the Desmond Sedici race bikes. Um, it's just that it, they could, you couldn't do that. If you rev that to 16 grand, then you do, you can only do that so many times before the thing would blow up and you, you can't give that to the general public and expect it to, well, it had a three year warranty at the time, <laughs> three year warranty. And so when I came on at Ducati back in 09, that uh, we were right in the middle of that quagmire of having to deal with those bikes while they were still in warranty and they were not pleasant to deal with. For comparison, what's the warranty on a Superleggera? One year? Two years. Two years. Every other Ducati forever has been two years. A lot of BMWs are three years. I, I don't know exactly, uh, but a lot of BMWs are three years, which is which is amazing to me. But that's one of those things we talked about earlier is the, the perception of, of BMWs being having high quality. Well, they back their, their stuff up for three years. So anytime you have a problem, I mean, that's why they're... But when I go to a shop's, the BMW shop's back room and see their warranty parts, it's a lot because... A lot of times because a lot of BMW guys ride their machines and girls ride their machines a lot. And then they also break a lot. So with the Ducati side, three years on that, that was just like, they were like saying, Hey, we know this is a weird one. Take a risk. Right. And they, they were still new Desmos laying around for quite a while. Right. That was the interesting thing. It didn't sell out right away. No. Whereas the Superleggera. Sold well, out before came, even right. So 2007 was the Lehman Brothers crash. Late 2007, right? That was the start of the of the horrible uh, first year of the recession. True recession was 2008. Right. So this is right when that yeah. bike came out. Yeah. I remember when Michael Sizz took delivery of his was like early mid 2008. That's exactly right. But the interesting thing to note, if you look at that recession and how it affected. Let's say the kind of people that can afford yeah, uh, sure, DJ versus sure. Porsche but the people like that wanted them got them early. And that was a lot of, like you said, that might be one of the problems is that they did make too many. Right. So a lot of people, the early adopters got them. Then you ran out of asses for seats because boy, that's a weird one. And it's a weird one to spend 65 to 72 grand on, you know? So, oof, I mean, it was heady stuff. And then to have a bike that, you had to, there was only certain shops that could own them or to, that could buy them or could right. sell them because yeah, they yeah. had to send a technician and they had to buy at least $10,000 worth of tools. Serious, serious amount of parts. Yeah. Right. And or sending tools, that yeah. technician to Italy for like a week's training or whatever it was at the time. And eventually, subsequently, we put on trainings um, locally because, you know, technicians would come and go from the network and they'd have to, but only, only a shop that had initially bought in and put in the order and had got however many bikes and got the tools and all that only those were able to do it so that kind of added to the the lore of the d16 and it now it i can see it keeping going up and going up because boy is it a weird one right and they it's very evocative you see that thing sitting on a showroom floor it's so different that's the thing that's interesting for me as a newer bike in the sense of like 
looking at collectibles, but it's it's eight years old too, and it still has I think as much allure as when it first came out, and I think that's that's interesting. I don't know if the Superleggera has that. If I look at it, because because I think I think part of it is like you talk about product lust, like you know there's products out there that just evoke something that make you want to have it. Like the Desmos got that in spades, like I think in a lot of visceral ways. Whereas I think for the Superleggera, like you have to be like this technical minded person. And, it, and it's interesting in that sense because, like, um, it was explained to me the Superleggera is very much uh, Domenicali's pet project. And so, and, and people need to understand, Claudio Domenicali came up through the ranks of Ducati, was into the racing side, became head of engineering. This is a degree engineer. Yeah. Came, in, came into en- head, the, the head of engineering at Ducati and is now the CEO of Ducati. And this was the bike that came out right when he became CEO. And it was just a, like way of saying, like, it's almost a celebration of how good Ducati's engineers are this idea like we can make a bike weigh this much and make this much horsepower and look at all these exotic materials we're doing look look at this radiator cap that we took like four (laughs) ounces off and how intricate it is uh it's interesting in that perspective oh man there was one customer that didn't get their radiator cap and oh and boy did that turn into a nightmare and we had to end up having it engraved and getting one and sending it to him and with a, an apology letter and oh my gosh if the, i was paying 65 grand though i'd yep. want the special radiator cap absolutely i would want it too i i wouldn't i wouldn't cry to the point where i need freaking wellies to walk around my house in but you know whatever the interesting thing for me when i look at these bikes like the the desmos Adichie, if you just round up and say 72 grand for each bike yeah 1500 of them built mm-hmm it's $108 million in revenue. You look at the Superleggera, it's $32.5 million. You get into like the Honda um, RC213 VS, mm-hmm. $36 million. Like these bikes make incredible revenue figures. Yeah. All right. Well, what bikes. I would say to that is with the Desmond Sidichi, I don't know what the warranty costs were. <laughs> But I'm telling you, they you think were, it erased some of those profit margins. I, I that was a halo product, man. Think about the the engineering that went into got pulled away from the rest of the brand to just do that project. Think about what could have been designed during that time. Think about how much it cost, all the engineers, all that resource that went into building that bike, the production of the bike, because. They weren't making 1098s at the time. They were making those and they were selling 1098s at the time. So they were losing potential sales by not being able to provide. There's a lot going on there. Like more, more, it's, it's nuanced, but that was what's going because Ducati, there's not enough production lines there. Just straight up, there's just not enough. There's not enough capacity, especially at that time. So that plus the after sales aspect of dealing with, I mean, each fairing, each piece was like three grand. Each one, the front fairing was three grand. The side fairings were three grand each. Tail section, the tail section, five or six thousand dollars, maybe if, if if not more. Anyway, lots of little pieces. And if one thing went wrong with one of those, it would end up getting warranted, right? And some of them were a lot of the parts would get shipped back, but some of them not, and it would just end up being a you know they're writing that shit off, right? Engines when they would go, and they would go, um, you know, thirty six thousand dollar engine, thirty six thousand was how much about that the, they would have to pay to here here's a new engine if it wasn't rebuilt so that happened a few times out of all kinds of weird stuff would happen right and it's um yeah so it's, it's that 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 adds up as well 
Whereas the Honda, I, I'm sorry, but I don't think that's going to happen to what is what do you call the RC RC twenty one three VS? Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure, especially coming out of the box with a hundred freaking horsepower, it's not going to do anything other than just sewing machine along there, right? But if they came out swinging with their two hundred and twenty horsepower, that's a that's a stressed member, man. RC thirties were known for blowing the hell up because they had two ring pistons instead of three ring. They didn't have an oil scraper. Guys would go out and ride them, not check their oil because they're used to a Honda not burning oil, and they would burn up all their oil, and then they just seize a crankshaft, right? That was a known problem because these are race bikes. Same thing happens with a lot of these production racer things, is they are truly production racers. They're made that way for the for a reason, so they are special. Uh, the R models that we have, not so much lately, but some of the earlier ones, like a 999R, Man, that is a wicked engine. It's a really well-built, really well-engineered thing, but you have to keep up with that stuff. It's not, you know, if you're going to go and do track days with that, it's going to have a, a finite life compared to even a normal 999. A 1098R, same thing. Not not as extreme, but definitely the same thing. You got titanium, you've got a different rev range, and holy crap, is it so fast, and you just want to keep riding it fast, and, you know, bad things will happen, you know? So if, if you keep pressing it at, at at beyond its duty cycle so a lot of these bikes that's one of the that's one of the things about them is well they either blow up or they get crashed and then there's numbers get lower and lower and lower or they burn down to the ground and there's recalls like with the desmond sidichi there was a recall for a fairing that needed to be cut away from the exhaust i don't know if you remember that because there's and then there's pictures of one of them a total bike pq somewhere it's like oh my gosh the worst thing you could ever see is a bike on fire and let alone a desmond sidichi so there's, you know, there's attrition, which happens to everything um, that raises the value of these bikes. So, you know, that's, a, that's, that's part of the thing is like, what would I, am I looking at it as investments? No. Would, would I look at the 50 grand that I'd spend? Am I saying, okay, I'm going to buy this Desmo for, for 50 grand. And I know a lot of people get angry when I call it a Desmo because they're all Desmos because they all have Desmodromic valve actuation. But screw you, I'm calling it a Desmo because that's just because <laughs> it's four syllables less. Right. So <laughs> um, I buy my Desmo for 50 grand now and I say, I'm buying an appreciating asset. Look how smart I am. No, that's not it. It's like I want this passionate thing, but I know I'm not going to lose my ass with it or I hope not. Right. I'm looking at maybe five years down, 10 years down, even 20. Some people might be looking at long game. I'm going to have that thing in my living room. I'm going to keep it uh, winterized in a weird way bring it out every once in a blue moon to, to ride it. But generally I want to have it like, I want my cake and I eat it, I guess. And then I'm going to let it appreciate, even if it's not the same as the CDs or, or IRA or whatever the, you name the, the financial product that I've bought, you know, annuity, what's an annuity, right? Whatever, whatever it is that if I've decided to, to, to put my money in that, or if I'm if I'm a day trading mofo and I'm like, well, I'm day trading so that I can pay for my freaking Desmo Sedici because that's what I want. And it's a lust and it's an object of lust. So it, wouldn't that be what, like you were seriously, you had seriously considered owning one of these bikes. Isn't that what you would look at it? Or is it just rationalization no, at that no, point? No, no, no. That, and that's the thing for me, like the idea that you're going to try and justify something like that with a rational decision is like, no. They, I can understand this idea of like, you're going to arbitrage the next the value over the next few years because it's like that idea like okay they're they've been in the 40s lately they're kind of in the 50s in three five years it's going to be 60 grand like okay that's it's not a bad investment if you're going to make a 20 percent return over 
three years, not too shabby. Inflation's doing nothing right now. Market's fairly volatile, but it is going up. So, you're, you know, you're taking a risk. That's the other thing. You got to take in the risk factor. Are motorcycles a good or risky investment or safe investment or things too? Because people just look at like, oh, I got an 8% return. I got a 3% return. CDs, I get in like a negative 0.2% return because CDs suck right now. Um, but the risk, the risk involved, you're not going to lose your your ass on it. Whereas, if you buy a CD, you know you're going to get the money back eventually. Yeah, well, I you, guess. I don't if know. If you buy a CD, you're just hoping you're beating inflation, to be honest. Um, but it's a, yeah, it's a very, and that's the same thing with bonds. Bonds are rated. This is actually what caused the the debt crisis because bonds and debts weren't, I shouldn't say bonds were being rated wrong, but debts were being rated incorrectly. So something that was supposed to be like AAA debt was really C debt. And that, that rating speaks to the risk involved. A AAA risk is very safe. A C rated risk is not so good. You're probably <laughs> up losing your hat. Um, but yeah, when I was, when I was looking at it it's it's one of those things where like no there's no there's no rational decision here you know if i'm lucky i don't lose money on the deal if i'm lucky i'm not throwing money away but it, i think i think anyone looking at those bikes especially in the like even in, if like you're looking at the long term like you have to have some very um interesting thoughts on what inflation and what the markets are going to be doing in the long term to think that a desmos DJ is going to be a good purchase over a 20 year term like that for me, almost like the longer you hold on to the bike, the worse of an investment it is just because of market forces and inflation. Whereas I see like the short term fluctuations being where the value is. So then would you, you would look at it like, all right, I'm going to buy this thing and I'm going to have it for five years and I'm going to, I'm going to sell it because I will have gotten that passion out of it. For me in this thought exercise, five years was definitely like the maximum you can hold on to it huh, before okay. you start doing things to yourself that you probably don't want to do. Um, but that's, you know, that's just the way I value one, the Desmos DJ and what it brings to me intrinsically and what it brings financially and two, my outlook on the financial market and, and, and what my risk profile looks like and what my investing profile looks like. Oh, I know that back. So I, I uh, shared a shop space in, in uh, Los Angeles area in Reseda with a gentleman that was an RC30 specialist and a guy named Jim Granger. We had a few of them in the shop. Um, and there was multiple times when there was bikes that came. This would have been 2003 to 2007 that I was there. Multiple times bikes came through the shop, RC30s for about 15 grand. So I think about that now. If I'd have had the money to, to plop down on 15 grand, uh, if I'd had 15 grand to plop down on an RC30, uh, and I could sell it now for between 30 and 40 grand if it, if, if it was the right one, cause it basically takes a stock one. Uh, and anyone that I'd be interested in would be as far from stock as you could get. Cause that was what was trick about them because they were very fast machines, but the, you had to fiddle with them, right? Any, any one of these, uh, homologation specials, usually when they're right out of the box, they're not so special, right? They, they need to be tweaked and played with, and they need the recipe of, exhaust intake engine building to, to make them right well the desmos hitichi doesn't it's 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 pretty fast right out the box you're not going to buy an ecu that's going to make it rev to 16 and then have the engine live period right that that there's some limitations but the bottom line is that bike's still already got nearly 200 horsepower yeah okay so maybe some, most of them make 165 to 175 but man that's pretty good right for most most people to go have fun on a motorcycle whereas a super legera we're seeing 190 
to 195 horsepower on dyno jet dynos and dyno jet dynos well depends on i shouldn't say just dyno jet in general but a dyno jet dyno that was known for reading low right and and over and over like multiple super leger has gone on this dyno and that that dude the 193 horsepower at the uh, rear wheel at at the rear wheel on, on a, in an area that i mean we're 400 feet max so we're near sea level so that's good but the consider without fueling, without maybe with the, the exhaust, right? Whatever exhaust comes with it, which is an Akrapovich, um, which is generally way better than the Termis. Um, How dare you? I, How I dare. dare you, I just sir. did that. I just said that. Um, that's pretty cool. That's that I mean that's fast. That that bike is really stout. It's, it's a, legitimately fast. Sure. That, there's no. You don't need that horsepower, right? There's a break point of about 160 where I say BS on anybody who thinks they need that much more to do most of the stuff that we do, right? Whether it be even fast track days, you need more than 160 horsepower. I call BS and I'll come hunt you down on my 848, right? 130 horsepower is plenty, you know what I'm saying? But there's feel and a vibe and a thing that you, when you twist the wrist and you go, there's nothing like having too much, you know, absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And I, it it's true. So that's what people want in that type of a bike. And that was what a lot of those old homologation special bikes were as well. Cause you would, you'd buy the bike and you have, you're, you're swinging yourself around saying, look how awesome I am. I just bought this rare bike and I can buy the race kit. And I had the most special, I had Mike Velasco build me a, you know, this is a, a tuner from the eighties, a, a heavy duty Honda factory guy. He's awesome. He works at the Brothers Power Sports up in, in Bremerton, Washington. He's rad. So Mike Velasco would be the guy. You'd have him build your bike, and you would have the trickiest bike in the state, right? An RC30 with a kit, with a power-up kit, and it made 130 horsepower-ish in that era. Just sounded the business because it didn't sound like an, a normal four-cylinder. That ZX7RR just sounded like a screaming four-cylinder. That YZF750 or, uh, or OW01, Sounded like four cylinder, whereas an RC30 sounded like a screaming banshee, right? Unreal sounds that would come out of those things because it was a V4. And then some people would have different crank firing cranks where there were big bang or, or screamer motors. And that, that was just an enthusiast dream. And then there were the twins, of course. So you'd have all the Ducatis of the era. I guess that's another thing I, I completely left out from that era was the, you know, the Ducati 888. I guess that's the thing about Ducatis, though. Whatever they have as the superbike is always pretty much what they were running in superbike. Then they would start making a few of these homologation specials where they would just add a few things, right? And then eventually it got to the point where you're making a 996 RS. They'd have the RS bike. So first it was Corsa. So there's a bunch of those out there, but that's another rabbit hole of Ducati. Those, those are bikes that you can only buy if you're a race team. Kind of. Sometimes. You're the right Italian guy. Or the, or the right dude, right? The, the, the guy that's spending a lot of money at the dealerships and you had the right dealership at the time. That was, it was relationship driven. It wasn't just, just financial driven. So if you were really good buddies with Geraldo Ferracci and you wanted a, a 916 that was really a 955 because it was the SP version, you could get it. I guarantee you, you could get it, right? I think that, yeah, I'm, I'm just saying at that era, it was relationship driven. Eventually it got to the point where it was like, okay, yeah, we, you can get us an interview. So some of the rich guys in the early 2000s, you'd have to sit down and say, well, this is my race team. I've got a, a $1.5 million budget. I'm going to go race AMA Superbike. 
then only would they would they sell you something like that and you would still be getting second rate stuff compared to uh, what was being raced on the world level but you're looking at hundred thousand dollar two hundred thousand dollar bikes right out, out of the factory so that's that's pretty cool stuff and they're out there there's a few of them right i have a couple friends with them whether it be 996 rs 998 rs then they got into the f bikes the fo3 the f was factory so what larry pagram's trickle down bikes often were were factory bikes that came down uh from being troy bayless's to uh larry running them right uh, that would have been in the in the mid late 2000s when he was still running the ducatis so there's some pretty trick stuff that came into the States, uh, Ducati-wise. And then those could be different investments, but that's another d- deal is race bikes, right? Racing with pedigree, with sure. with and that, That's heritage. even harder to be as a collector, like, you know. You need provenance. And yeah. if it has provenance, if you can say that this is the bike that won the World Superbike Championship, shut the front door, man. That thing's worth a lot more money. Yeah. RC51, probably not a terribly collectible bike. It's definitely something no. like I like I like those machines. I would I wouldn't mind having one in my garage. But it's not it's not like a classic collector boy. But if you had one of those Castro Hondas oh that Colin God. Edwards was riding or even Nikki Hayden's wherever yeah. like but that was the thing by the Honda was supporting the RC30s. There was still I mean it it, it went from <clears throat> HPD, HGA, there was these weird they'd have these acronyms for their like race shops back in the 80s and it and it ended up just being HRC. And you could call up and order your kit parts for your RC30 or your RC45 and it was it went until about the RC51. And once the RC51 came out, I think that was 2000, it started to become really difficult to get the shit that you needed to go really fast. An RC51, much like an RC45 needed $50,000 worth of stuff to make it competitive with anything else out that was out there, right? A ZX7 being a benchmark, say what Eric Bostrom was racing, which was a ZX7. And even then, those things were all those bikes were trick, like seriously trick. There was a there was a point where it was like if you you weren't part of the factory, you had nothing. You had nothing because they had so much going on in those engines. So yeah, RC fifty one man. There was a, there was a few people that had some trick stuff, but nothing like what the factories had. And all the stuff that they would come out, they started to. What well, I guess that was the point of my what I was saying is in the late nineties, early two thousands, they started to constrict heavily who was getting access to the real parts and those real parts if you wanted an aluminum cam drive gear set for an rc51 yeah you're not going to get that right it was worth 10 percent of your horsepower yeah you're not going to get that that that's for the factories right so that that ended up start, starting to go away whereas with the ducati thing you just need to know the right person you needed to pay them the right money even to this day i'm pretty sure that's how it can happen if you've got enough connections and you you present a good case to say, hey, I want to go racing. You could buy the parts like that, but not as Joe Schmo street bike as easily. It's like camming buying the uh, Desmos of each. Well, um, yes, um, absolutely. GP fifteen, GP no, 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 no. GP thirteen. No, I, th- I whatever it was a Rossi, Rossi bike. Was a Rossi bike, yeah. So I think it's a GP thirteen. Right. So this is a friend of mine that that's a friend. Well, he's a friend of the industry. I'll say that. <laughs> Camming's a great guy, and he he had built these relationships for. A very long time. When I was a pro Italia, he had, yeah, I, it was a very rare Corsa 888 slash 851, right? It was, it was, I think it was once owned by Bobby Carradine. Anyway, it was fascinating because you'd see these certain bikes that were just rare as hen's teeth. I think he might even still have that bike. 
that's amazing. Some of these things, there's only in the less than 10, right? So we're talking about a guy that's had a relationship with Ducati for 30, 40 years, right? And so he then gets to the point where he's like, you know what? I want to buy myself a Desma Sedici race bike, and he manages to get it done. Pretty cool. All the power to him. Yeah, sure. Take it, take it a step down. I mean, okay. when you look at the the Super Legera to get uh, to get one of those, like you had to have had some sort of history with the brand. Like, well, like the that, first crop were like that was Desma Sedici more than anything. So the Desma Sedici D sixteen RR, you had to be like to get on the list in the beginning. You had to have had not only just a uh, a 999R, but you had to have seen like multiples before that. Like I think the 999R was the main qualifier. So the dealers were told, we're not even going to entertain it unless you've got, you know, a, pe a, pe a person with pedigree to get the Sesma CDG. But then eventually, I think that went away when they said, oh, we're going to make not just 500, we're going to make 1500. I think that started to go away a little bit. As far as the Super Legera, I'm pretty sure that was the case as well, but not really. I, I'm pretty sure if you just had the money, you're gonna you're be fine. And that's well, I think that's ultimately what what ended up happening. My understanding was like, because uh, dealers were inviting would be customers, and there was like a special website set up where they could yeah. look at stuff. And there was very much like a I think the first letters went out to Desmos Edici, of course, owners, sure. and then 1098R owners, and like there was kind of like a pecking order. Yeah until they filled up all 500 sure. uh, units. And I think by the time they got to the end of it, it was kind of like, do you guys have a rich guy or who comes by your shop who wants one of these? All right, fine. But yeah, he can, he can get one. But, you know, at that point, there's probably like 20 bikes left over or whatever. Sure. Whatever the number is. But, it, yeah, there was definitely a pecking order when they started out. It was, it and was that's, I, I can understand that. I think that's that's been something that the car, I, was, I would assume Ferrari's been doing this Ferrari. for years, right? The way it was explained to me, like Ferrari, it's like it's like even worse. Like you want you want to get a La Ferrari, like they go, oh, yeah. no 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 Jensen, you need to start out with uh, maybe get a test old Testarossa first, yeah. And then maybe you can buy one of the new ones, you know, get a <laughs> sure get a Modena, and then uh, you know maybe maybe you know after you've bought 10, 20, 30, we can start talking about those echelon kind of machines. Like yeah, you need to be, be in the club. It'd be interesting to get the take of a Ferrari expert. I don't know if we know any, mm, but if we, we if we get our hands on one someday, we we'll, <laughs> we might have to have that conversation. It's fascinating. So to see Ducati trying to do a similar thing, I, I get it because it makes those guys that are up there that have bought those they the, as they should feel special for having owned these special machines. And if they're not just dropping the pan, nouveau rich. Just got my, you know, just just sold my dot com, so I want to show how awesome I am, guys. Right? Sure, sure. Well, and that's and that's interesting. So, so we're we're chuckling about because our friend Arun, your your now new boss, manages Motocorsa, the Ducati dealership, and he's also the Gran Turismo. Yeah, Ron Tonkin's Gran Turismo. Yeah, and the Ferrari dealership in Portland. Yeah. So he he was obviously the one to tell me, but he he was telling me an interesting story about um. If, so if like you're one of like these super Ferrari guys, like you're in the club, you're like you know. Yep top level echelon ferrari tistas i don't know what the what the cool word is for a ferrari on tifosi it. well no that's the race fans race fans are tifosi but okay. i don't know whatever whatever it is ferrari dude like you ferrari hit you hit that girl? that pinnacle ferrari level um you can actually like own i'm doing the quotation marks in, in the air like a like a ferrari formula one car oh sure but Absolutely. it's like but it's like they keep it there and you have to name the date. All right, I want to go to Qatar and race, and and go. Uh, then they go. They figure out a way to get the car there and and rent the track. And but he was saying to me like it, it's it's like goes beyond just like them setting up the track. They're like there's like a camera crew there, and it's like 
it's it's selling the experience, experience. of lifestyle. being the Formula One driver. Like you're in an actual Formula One car. It's, this is Schumacher's car from 2001, and it's the one that won the race. It's auction ring, and okay, and then you were gonna have like the entire team. There's a 15 person team there, and you're gonna have a crew chief who's gonna go over every yeah. corner with you, and then there's gonna be a camera crew that comes up and interviews you after. Like it's like this whole world, and it'd be interesting if to see if Ducati ever follows that route where it's like it's not even just like selling you the machine it's not like oh cammy you're gonna go take your your gp13 to laguna seca and have a you know fun day and maybe you know some guys from ducati north america come out because it's you know an hour away where it turns into this whole thing like you know jeremy burgess comes out and he helps you set it up and it's it's a whole meal where you have the track and oh, that man. bike when oh, he was he was given strict instructions not to ride it oh yeah yeah Right? I'm just using that as I know, idea. but I just just to give people understanding. I don't even that. think he's allowed to take the fairings off. Well, yeah, right. It's a weird, <laughs> it's a weird thing. It's like, yeah, you can buy this, but you can't do anything with it. I'm pretty sure that that totally hasn't cool happened that. exactly like that. But I mean, he, he's not supposed to be out and about on it. That's part one of the things that is part of the deal, I guess. I don't know exactly. Well, I mean, right? just think about it from like a legal point of view, right? Like, like. We talked about, I think, I don't remember what show, but we, you know, these race parts after they hit their life cycle, yeah, sure, they get trashed, they get crushed because you don't want to use them. It's the same thing with, you know, this bike's been around 18 world circuits over the course of the year. It's probably towards the end of its life cycle. Like, you can't even, like, from a legal point of view, like, let someone ride on that bike because you don't even know. You know, yeah, I don't know what, why, why not? You just buyer beware. You just sold them a used machine. Yeah, welcome I, to America, my friend. Buyer beware. Yeah, yeah. I, I, that's I, what I, I hate got, about it. 15 tort lawyers that just like uh, fired up their cell phones to give uh, you a nasty phone call. Yuck. Right. But, but that's horrible. That's the problem. So what, what, this guy decides, Hey, I want to buy this race bike. I don't see any problem with just selling him the race bike. And you, if you, I don't, I think due diligence is to give him a lifing of the, of the engine. Okay. This bike had 500 kilometers on the engine. We rebuild them at a thousand kilometers. So you have 500 kilometers before you have to send this back to us. Right. That I can understand. Well, and I think that's why Ferrari does that system where they have sure. like, hey, we take care of the Formula One car. We know all the lifing on all the parts. We're going to make sure that when you go out, it's good to go. And that's part of the service that you pay into. So, Can you imagine, though, you get in a Formula One car for 2001. That was back when they were amazingly wicked, like 20,000 RPM wicked. Jeez, I bet somebody that, that buys one of those barely gets into, barely, barely gets anywhere near the limit. So you could probably run one of those quite a bit. Whereas if Schumacher went out and did pole time, I mean, that it's got a finite life. But if you just got, you know, Daddy Warbucks buying it, it makes you wonder. Like, they they have it down. They probably they, they have the data loggers on those cars. They know where it's revving and when. And they could probably look at this and say, hey, we could keep running this car for years. Yeah, right? yeah Jensen's in that car. I think it's going to run forever. Yeah, well, Jensen Button, right? He's fast. <laughs> namesake style. Yeah, right? he spells it wrong, though. Oh, really? Yeah. Is it Jensen? Oh, pronounced more or less the same. But you're Jensen yeah. with an E-N. So I, His Jensen of a bitch, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> That's not nice. Uh yeah, with the E-N, it's the Norwegian-Danish spelling. Ah. O-N, it's the Swedish, and we don't like them. No, no, of course not. So, Hopefully Amelie's not listening. A little Scandinavian. I mean, I think down at the core, all of them hate each other. <laughs> but I think we come together against the Finns. I think like, oh, oh, you're Finnish? 
No, you're just you're just Western Russian, okay? <laughs> you're not even because because it, it's a different like that's like <laughs> that's like the thing like Denmark and Sweden and Norway have like conquered and ruled over each other so many times over the last however many thousands of years that it, they're just really the same country with just like some some arbitrary lines drawn in between them. Whereas like Finland has a distinct culture that is different than I would Sounds say. Sounds like that's why they're culture. better. Isn't that why they're the best? Is that why Kimi Rakuten is awesome? Well, they have so much damn snow that they're just good in right, good in bad weather. And, sure. Yeah. I mean, what else are you going to do? All the other the what is it? The Finnish flick. All right. So speaking back to two wheels. So as far as collector machines, right? I want to know what you want to put in your collector garage. Well, so we you and you asked the question. It was just from a passion standpoint. I think the list was a Briton, obviously, course, right? Because there's no. But that's almost unfair because. There's, there's, there's only ten of them. Just had the barber festival, and there was only there was nine. Yeah. No, I think the tenth one's accounted for. It was just uh, uh, they they couldn't take it out of the museum in New Zealand. I think that was the key. Was oh, that there was maybe the they one... weren't going to let it let it leave. Yeah, that, something like I can't remember. I'm 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 sorry, fair, I don't know, enough. but not a lot. Yeah, of course, but they're they're out there man. and they've come up. And of course, if uh, you know, we're 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 dreaming anyway. Fair that enough. would be a vehicle that I want to ride. I want to feel. I want to. Right, I want to. I would be great to own. It's the most beautiful motorcycle ever created. It's just everything for me. Right? I just feel like it's unfair. It's like it's like asking a kid, like a like like fifteen year old me, like, would you want to have sex with Cindy Crawford? It's like absolutely. Like, it goes without saying. Like that's that's already in the books. Yeah, but you got to list it. I fair otherwise, enough. right? It's fair enough. It's part of the thing. That would be one. RC thirty would be uh, right there. Um, I had put in the list uh, a nine nine six RS from from that era, just because I. I got to ride one at Willow once and it was one of Camming's bikes. It was an amazing experience. And um, even though it's weird to think about that bike probably having less horsepower than a 1098, it was a very visceral, gnarly, um, I never forget it experience. And and with the componentry that was on that bike and the fact that it was a, a 916 based thing, it was an amazing looking thing. Yeah, the way the engine revved, everything about it was so different than any other bike. So I that... That's up there for me, and they're out there. It's it's rare, but an RS is out there. Um, what else did I have on there? I, a Vincent Black Shadow. Never ridden one, but I would love to ride one, and I'm pretty sure I'd have fun on it. But I have a feeling that would be a bike that I would own and then sell, and and then I'd end up with it's like the experience. Like I I, I tasted it. I got it yeah. in my system, and now I'm ready to move on. Right, and I'm okay with that. Whereas the Briton, I want to have it. I want it, you know, I, I want it hanging from my ceiling. Right, it, the RC30, I want to do track days on that because I, I've known, tr I've spent a lot of time on RC30s on a race bike, on street bikes. I enjoy them immensely. They're the size of a freaking 250. They make incredible power. They have great sound. They're they're amazing machines. Period. So I have I have enough experience, like first-hand true experience with those that I know that I want one of those as a rider and I don't want a fancy stock not molested one I want one that's been race prep right I could the laundry list of bomotas I love I love I love there I would have all kinds of bomotas right but the main one would be a DB2 that's an attainable thing though right that the DB2 you could you can get that I could get that if I really wanted to spend the money I could own one of those that's a Ducati engine, second generation. So DB2, Ducati Pomoda 2. So it, early mid-90s, awesome bike. Would I want a Tessie? Sure, I'd love to have a, a Tessie. This is the hub center steering one. But I, I'm not like desperate for it because 
I would not be able to, I, I feel like I couldn't ride it. It's just, I, I would, I would not, I wouldn't want a bike. None of the bikes I'd want would I, would I want something I couldn't feel like I could go out and ride. That would, that would be disappointing. The Britain, even though it sounds bizarre, I would go ride the shit out of that motorcycle because anything that happens to it, you're going to have to fix anyway. So why not use it? Right. If it's, it was all hand built stuff anyway. So, right. It's, it's, if you had enough money to own one, then you know, you generally would have enough money to figure out a way to fix it. And then one of the guys that's in the United States that has one is doing that, like looking seriously about recasting cases and getting parts made. Right. But that makes sense. So that that's an extreme on this, but that's those, those are, that's the start of a list. Right. I could keep going on and on because I love so many motorcycles. Right. That's the hardest part for me. Like whittling, whittling it down to, to like five or, or so. Like, like for me, like the most obvious bikes that jump out of my mind are, are probably not bikes you'd really get that excited about because it's just, I haven't scratched deep enough into the service to be like, I want a, you know, 2000 Ducati 996 RS with this and this yeah, and that sure. on it. You know, sure. Whereas I know, I want a Kajiva Elephant race bike, one of the race bikes that was in Dakar. I'd love that. That would be so cool. Figure out a way to put a plate on it, even though, <laughs> even though that would be stupid. But that that would be a, a good one, right? One thing that's nice is I already own a Christini. I would love to have another one. I'd love to have a two-stroke Christini. So these are all dream bikes, but are those collector bikes? Not really. No, not really. That's not a collector that, bike. That's the the Kajiva is sure. The Kajiva very well could be, but not in the same vein as. I mean, do I want a, one of those old cyclones? Not really. I mean, I, where's a board track I can go around? I'm not really excited by that. Something that's just purely going to be an aesthetic. I get it, but it's not really. Do, do I want any kind of a Harley? Yes. I want an XR750 flat track. <laughs> That'd be cool. Right? That'd Absolutely. Cool. I would love to have that because I would actually go. I would figure out a way to go ride it at a mile, even though that would be at my peril. It's it's a bucket list item for me to race a, a flat track at a on not, a mile. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Not even a half mile. You're gonna go mile. Well, I want to do half. Well, of course, I'd get there doing a half mile. I'd love to start on a, a smaller machine, and you know, I would do it metered. But if I had the chance to own one of those, I'd own it and be like, okay, what are the steps I need to take to safely get this thing onto a mile with a big fluffy cushion so I can just go out and just roost? I would love that. That would be a for me pinnacle. But I, that, that's a, that's a good one. All right. That's, that's a dream thing, but those bikes are valuable, right? They're very rare. There's not very many parts for them. They're really valuable. So that would be neat. Moto Guzzi MGS 01 rad things. Very rare. Love to have something like that, but they're very, very difficult to find. This is a bike that they made surprisingly in 01, right? Moto Guzzi. And it was a, something that they were looking at building for the for the market but they never did it was a very strange time for guzzi but they're very trick bikes so that's that's definitely one from a just a a dream standpoint a, a sport 11 moto guzzi sport 1100 but again that's not really a collector bike that's not gonna that's not gonna appreciate a whole lot so what those other bikes would stay money like the RC30 for sure, the Britain for sure, the v Vincent's they're fifty to a hundred thousand dollars. Would I want a super mono? Eh, I guess, but that doesn't. I mean, it's still a single. It's it's hard to explain that. I'm not really a huge fan of singles. Like not a great. So I'm I'm not as driven as I would be other bikes. So here's here's the the money question, right? What modern or, or not modern, but what current or semi current bike? now you see being 
collectible bikes in the future. You know, like bikes that have been out in the last five years or so. I'll be interested to see if the R1M is. I don't know if it is. It doesn't seem like it's going to be, but it. I don't know what <laughs> after, the numbers before are. Before or after the recall. All right. <laughs> um, I'd like to know once it's... How many, how many of those have been sold, right? I don't know. And if it's small numbers... Hundreds, yeah. Um, then that's that's probably going to be pretty collectible. The, they, the, they seem to be coming out. I think I think I want to say it's two fifty each year. That's a, that's a small amount, man. I can't remember if that's worldwide or just U.S. That'll be but that's number on the top of my head. Um, I think eventually the two thousand and six Yamaha R one LE, which was oh, a yeah. fairly rare thing, um, and I was fortunate to work on on those at the time. That was a neat thing. So I think that. Again, that's not one that a lot of people don't think about it. And I'm sure they're out there and they're probably cheap. So that would be one to look at. Uh, these new Kawasaki's, um, the whatever. The H2? H2R especially, right? H2R, that's when you want to talk about bikes that like I sit there and I think about. That's one I'm like, that'd be, for me, just cool to own. I don't know, investment-wise, I think it's probably a shitty deal because it's 50 grand up front uh, for because it's track only and no warranty and all that jazz. But just the idea that there's like a 300, it's like 310 horsepower. Just there's the idea that there's just like this 300 plus yeah, production sure. motorcycle. You can call it production because it's obviously not getting a uh, street legal and all that. But, you know, it's coming out of the factory in, in mass. That That's astounding. It's supercharged and it looks like a just a pterodactyl transformer thing. Right, so that's a special yeah. bike. I yeah, think that's special bike. That's for sure one of them. There's a bevy of Ducatis, but it's it's fascinating to watch that. So now d- being in a position where I'm having to uh, evaluate a lot of these bikes and seeing like a um, recently I had to look at a 2005 999R, and I'm looking at the prices and it's almost depressing because they're like I right, see one going for ten, one for thirteen. Well, now it's hard to find prices what they actually get sold for, but you're you're watching the market. You're looking at Cycle Trader. You're looking at Craigslist. You're see looking what at eBay. Are what are people asking, and what what might they be getting? And to see that with an R back in 2005 was it was 30 grand in 2005, which is mind blowing. And that what even made it even further because I wasn't paying attention to it for some reason at that time. But even an S, a 999S, was going for twenty three thousand dollars. And and I mean that's what a Panigale. S is going for now, or maybe a little bit more, but still mind-blowing that even at that time, that's how inflated those prices were. The dealers must have been making a killing off of those bikes, I, I would imagine, I would hope. Or maybe they just weren't selling a lot of them, so they weren't making a killing. Depends what, right? sell, depends what Ducati was selling them to the dealer for. And I don't, Well, of course, I get it. But I mean, in general, uh, that might have been one of the problems they were having, because I know that the dealers were very happy when they could sell a metric shit ton of 1098s at i think that price point was like 14 or 16 grand when they finally said hey we're coming out with this and it's going to be incredibly cheap and like way better and pretty right so that that's interesting to see that those those prices are kind of there i recently i had to look up a very strange bike that i had I hadn't even thought of in 10 years it was a 998 uh final edition fe something that most people didn't even know existed 2004 this is really weird because the 999 came out in 2003 so they did this final edition of a a, sorry the 999 and 03 so the 998 and 04 very rare bike but 
not desirable, right? There's, it's a strange thing. You would need to have something more than just the fact that it's low numbers. But I have a feeling in 20 years, 30 years, if you're just looking at the list of bikes that's like super rare, that's going to be very valuable, um, that'll be one of them. Uh, there, was a, there was a Neiman Marcus Edition 748. It's silver. It was the L. You don't see those very often, and they don't survive. The 748 buyers, even the people that bought it from Neiman Marcus, those bikes would get beaten to within an inch of their lives very early because they were pretty fragile, and you have to rev the crap out of them to go anywhere. So that's a rare bike. There's a few of those that are in the Ducati realm. I would love to get a Benelli Tornado. I, but there was one at Moto Corsa last year. It kills me that I just didn't have the It was a, the green and silver one. Didn't have very many miles on it. They wanted like in the beginning, they wanted 10 grand and I think they went way low. Like it, it got all the way down to like five or six grand. Very depressing because that's a cool looking bike. Even though it's dated, it has some dated stuff on it. It's just amazing. I would love to have that. But again, not really from a collector standpoint, just from a passionate having a very rare and I like I like silver. I hate red and uh, the irony of me being such a Ducati fan, but hating red. So uh, I like silver bikes, and that's one of them. I, I, was, I was telling somebody that today. If I could do the collection of of Italian silver bikes, I'd be happy because there's a silver Guzzi, there's a silver Laverta, there's a right, the silver Envy Augustas. I, I would love to have that set up for sure. We have a, a nine um, or a 900 SSFE, beautiful bike, silver, all silver, um, and that's it's quasi collectible. I mean, I don't know what those went for new, but. You know, we're looking at getting about ten grand for it, so that's an interesting one. What about like, because um, I've had Turbolaunch on the brand since you, you brought yeah, it up. Sure. So I was thinking like MH nine hundred E or yeah, or, um, yeah, Sport no, the, classics. The value of the MH nine hundreds is is pretty good. Uh, I literally just today listed one up, put it on eBay for eighteen nine, so to nineteen thousand dollars. So is that going to get it? I don't know, but it's up there and they're, they're selling for close to that. And there's not very many for sale because there was only 2000 of those sold online, right? That was, that was the first production motorcycle that was only sold. It was exclusively sold, uh, on the internet. That was a very interesting thing that happened. I think that was 2000 when that happened and those bikes are very rare. But they're not. It's not like that's a rider's bike. They're very. They they they'll go like ninety miles, and they're incredibly uncomfortable, and you can't get parts for them. And it's a weird one, right? Bevel drive Ducatis. Holy crap! I mean, I could go off uh, all the late seventies. I got to ride a nine hundred SS from the early eighties earlier this summer. Our friend Colin let me ride his nine hundred SS. Amazing experience, right? I got to back to back a nine hundred SS black with gold with a BMW R90, I think it's on R90S. So it's the, it's the quasi homologation race bike from that era. Looks like an old man's bike, but is, was pretty decent. And the, to, to ride those two bikes next to each other was really cool. These are completely different, but they were twins from the era of the late seventies when superbike racing was starting a phenomenal machine, but those bikes, a 900 SS going for $50,000 plus it's mind boggling to see that. But that's that's the market. So from a from a am I going to put my money into it standpoint? I would look very seriously at that if I could. But not now because they seem to be inflated. Whereas of course when I when I was looking at them 15, 20 years ago, that would have been the smart move. So that's that's what you have to play that game of. Well, what's hot? Like you're saying, what's hot now that nobody else is watching? 
What 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 could I buy now that or, nobody or else gonna be see the value? Right. Like that's that's what's been the interesting thing for me, like watching the sport classic, you know. Yes. And not it wasn't like it was a highly collectible bike when it came out. And and for me, I kind of have this same feeling with the Street Fighter, and I'm totally biased because I totally own one. But it's just the idea like, you know, it wasn't a big seller when it came out, but now we're seeing like like the sport classics are actually going for more than what they were listing yes, for. If they're so, clean and new. Absolutely. Right. So so those were actually fairly decent investment ah but hold Whereas on like my street fighter i've lost a couple grand but that's the thing it's it's held it to value fairly well uh, was, but the with the sport classics couldn't we we talked about this with the deus ex, deus ex machina. machina you don't you don't know your latin <sighs> no i don't it's i guess it's the pretentiousness of having that name that that's part of it <laughs> uh but what what do we hater what do we call the um the retro post authentic sorry post post authentic uh man so post authentic it's it's dying on the vine eventually that will go away so the the hipster aesthetic whatever we're calling this this cafe racerish thing that's been going for a while i mean we're getting probably 8 to 10 years into this general like it being hip but those bikes came out before their time hip right sport classics came out and the show circuit in like 03 or 04, like just killed everybody saying, hey, look at what we can do. Then they made them and it was an incredibly vocal minority that said, we want those bikes. Just loud and proud, we want those bikes. They came in and they languished on floors. They, they sold high in the beginning, but then there was like a not enough people for them until this, this the just right at the end, sadly, um, and frankly, after they, they stopped selling them, Tron came out and the, the main character, seriously, it was amazing to watch what happened by just one movie that was fairly popular. And once that bike got onto the silver screen like that, the dealers were getting calls left, right, and center, and that helped drive the prices up. But I don't think that that's going to have a, a long-lasting impression. You, you don't see it 10 years from now maintaining not not the pan. too much. I I. But, you know, stranger things have happened. There's a lot of those bikes out there. They all had problems with their fuel tanks uh, oh, swelling. Oh, God, yeah. So depending on whether the fuel tanks are too much swollen or not enough or whatever, they're bubbling. And I mean, there's all kinds of weird shit that went on with them. Class action lawsuit and all that. Who knows? That might add to it. That there would be the lore of those if, they, if they're okay. Um, now, Paul Smart. Now, that is a collectible. The, there was one... Sport Classic. I can't remember the, what they called the name of it, but it was a black with a gold stripe. This was the interesting one because it was like Ducati's kind of desperation to move units. I, lo I love that you brought the Pulse Mark. It's another silver Ducati. <laughs> I don't want. I don't really. I don't like the look of them, so I don't really want that. But that would be if I'm going to have that complete collection. I would have to have that. I mean, I have an ST2. It's silver, <laughs> right? <laughs> I like. I like the silver bike. I think you need to see someone. You need to talk about this. What's that? I know I have silver issues, right? I'm like fucking my Mercedes is silver now, but it's kind of champagne. It's champagne. Whatever you got. I'm a germaphobe. Maybe I'm a germanophile. Uh, what are what is it when you're in germaphobe? Germaphobe. Germaphobe. <laughs> no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Ugh. Anyway, so yeah, Paul Smarts. Cool. They're gonna they're gonna be worth a lot. No, absolutely gonna be. They, worth. I think they already are. I think it's yeah, totally. Pretty and they're gonna keep one. growing. They're because yeah. that's a pretty rare one. And some of the sport classic models, I think, will hold. But like the GT, I, I don't know. I don't know. That's that's a good one that you could speculate on. You could think, hmm, 
could I go and find some sport classics out there? But there's a lot. They have a lot of numbers. So I'm not really, where's the Paul Smart? doesn't. Single shock. So there was one machine that came out. And I think there was only 100 of them, the black and uh, black with the gold stripe. It had the single shock. I can't remember for the life of me what they were calling that one and what year it was. But it was like, uh, hey, we've got all these bikes. What can we do with them? Because we're not selling, but we need to do something with them. And I think it was the... I think it was the the genesis of a, a sh- uh, of advanced motorsports with Jeff Nash and and and, and Dallas that he created one that had the it, it was evocative of the old black with gold uh, paint scheme from the late seventies early eighties. So they made that bike, and there's only a few of them out there. And I know a couple of them gotten crashed and beat up. I, I know personally, I've seen them. So again, a battle of attrition with some numbers, and you got a bike that has the potentially a lot of uh, collectability over time. Not a lot with the Japanese side, though. Right? I, I can't Current think of too crop, many. Current crop, it's hard. Um, the Honda with the Olins. Is that... I mean, I look. I had to look one up the other day because there was somebody asking for a, a, a price to, to for us to buy it. And I was looking at it like, well... You're talking it, about the CBR, the SP? Yeah, yeah the so SP. This is, this is the Honda CPR, CBR 1000 R SP. Right. There's a name for you. Jeez, yeah, right. So it's they got some tasty bits on it. Yeah. And it, you know what? I'm sure it's a great bike because it's, it's got the Olin's got the Brembo, I think. Brembo. Yeah. So it does that matter a whole lot? Not really. I know better and you know better, but generally it has the, it has what I call varmint factor. It's shiny. Varmint. So the varmints like to go after it, right? <laughs> <laughs> we used to say that anytime you'd see, <laughs> you'd see the, the bright and shiny shit all over a bike. Like high varmint factor. I don't know why one. I have like some sort of like mental image of Caddyshack. It was just that damn <laughs> gopher just going after things. Greasy, grimy gopher guts, right? <laughs> yeah. So that that's uh that's uh that's part of it, right? They just, seriously, Olin's it's gold, so it must be better, right? And and a lot of people think that. And in a lot of cases it is, but in most cases it's not. It's just a gold colored fork and the internals are really no better than anything you can get anywhere else and but it but the it's it's a psychological effect of having that it says olin's on it so it must be good same with the brembos b2b marketing we talked about this yeah you know it adds value just by the name sure and it's it's good i'm not hating on it i I think it's good so the honda has that and but i think the numbers are high so i don't really know if that if that's going to be a collectible machine yeah that's hard I, i look at R7, we talked about that. R7, for that, sure. That was a little bit older than the scope I was looking at, but like I think, I mean, I think the R7 already is a collectible bike. Absolutely, it is. For, especially for a sport bike. I haven't seen one in forever, and the last one I saw went for big money, right? So I, I would be interested to see what where, where those are, and but there's really not a very good like with cars. There seems to be a good base to go off of. Like if you're a Ferrari car collector, you can find the info on. Where did one sell at Bonhams? Where did one sell at Meekum Auction? Where did one sell in Europe? What sell the bees? Whatever. And you can get some data on when was the last one. It's very difficult to find the same info. I'm not saying it's impossible, but you have to be in it and deep in it all the time. And now I'm starting to get to that point. So this might be part of my future is getting into these and becoming that expert that knows what the bikes are worth. But do I really want to be kind of a shill for that? I don't, I'm not sure if I want to. I'm already there, though, because I love it. I, I enjoy these machines. Would I want to own an R7? M- maybe. I mean, 
I, I know what those are. I was spent a lot of time around the R7, R1 hybrids at Graves. They were wicked bikes, but they're also like five feet wide. They don't really, <laughs> I don't really fit. I'm, I'm a skinny bike guy. I'm not even kidding. I'm a skinny bike. I like skinny, but that's why I like Ducatis. They're skinny. Whereas you get on one of those things, There's you'd be such surprised. There's a great setup there for something tiny between your legs. No, I, I like it nice and thin, right? <laughs> and I like it to vibrate. R7s, they just they just come like like little sewing machines, right? No, those bikes were again, you buy the bike for fourteen, eighteen thousand dollars, whatever it was. I don't even know what those were, but they were up there. And then you had to spend a reckless amount of money to get them to to be even close to fast, right? So that that wasn't really I, I guess part of me the the and it's just a four cylinder in line, even though it looked really wicked. Haga. Haga's bike, rad, you know, so that's cool. But what's really trick was there's a, enough people that built R7-1s, right? So this would be Graves and a couple other entities that were building these weird amalgamations of R7 and R1. Um, and those are there's a couple of those out there that are really well done, and they're extremely trick. Is that a collectible bike? Not really, but it would be to me, right? If I knew, especially a real one, there was a this is a whole nother story, but the 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 story of the R7 slash R1 Formula Extreme bikes and the AMA, where they 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 were allowing these weird combination bikes and you unlimited this and unlimited that in this Formula Extreme class for I think the limit was thousand CCs, but other than that, there were a lot of bets off. So Chuck Graves built an R7 slash R1 and he used the front half of an R7 frame and the rear half of an R1 frame. And he raced for a long time like that until somebody else protested him. And then he had to create a front half of an R1 frame with a back half of an R7. It was just a cluster. But there's a few of these bikes out there because of that. And they are trick. They're wide. Like I said, they're these gigantic things. But they have a lot of kit parts from Yamaha's Suzuka 8-hour racing. So there's some there, that's some neat stuff. But that's that's weird off the beaten path things that most people wouldn't know about and it would be tough to it would be tough to sell to a collector right because it's a it's a mishmash bike it's not a production bike yeah you start getting into a market of of thousands of enthusiasts to like there's just gonna be like two three guys that are gonna understand this bike appreciate it and be willing to pay whereas a ducati guy that's looking for a very specific thing from that era they might say i want to find a 748 rs this was a a made for racing only 748 wasn't the R. The R came out. It was a street bike. But the RS was a full-on race bike, and it was wicked. And there's a few of them out there, and they're I think they're undervalued. There's been a couple of them that have gone for pretty cheap, mainly because they were legitimately raced. The AMA at the time had a class called Pro Thunder. We called it Pro Blunder because there was only a few fast people. It was like the weakest field. You had like a few racers that were wickedly fast at the front, and then there was the rest of these just horrible contraption bikes singles and just nasty twins that were just just cobbled together crap but there was a lot of good ones at the front and they were all on 748 rs's so the, all the, the bikes that made it here were all beat up those are pretty rare but that's a production race bike thing if it had a pedigree fair enough but i doubt you're going to find one if you just found one that was a track bike there was a couple of them out there that'd be wicked because that would be a functional bitchin machine tough to take care of, right? You have to find parts and you have to, I mean, that era of Ducati engine was definitely one you had to pay attention to a lot. That's, that's the valve. That's, that's the engine that, that got Ducati. It's bad name for having to do valve adjustments all the time was that Desmo Quattro engine. 
So that would be a tough one if you're going to ride it. But if you're just going to have it to say, look at look at my 748RS, there's only 15 of them in the state. I don't know. I'm, I'm making that up. But if it was only 15 of them brought over, then that's rare, 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 right? So that would be more because it's a production thing. That would be cool. Whereas the R7R1 thing, that's just a, a mishmash, right? RC45, fuck yeah. But where are you going to find that? There's not many of those out there for sure. They're cool. They're way cool, but they're not an RC30. RC30s are just, they've got an extra bit of lore. Even though RC45 is, there's less of them. They are more collectible in certain ways, but RC30 had the the history. So that's, it'd be, it'd be cool to just check out where all the prices for these things are and where can you find them. NR750, holy crap. Almost forgot about an oval piston Honda. I mean, those are going for nearly a hundred thousand dollars. Right. And so, not so long ago, they were like 75 grand. So they're definitely they're up. up in price. And that would be one that's absolutely collectible. One of the rarer bikes in the world, for sure. With oval pistons. I mean, that transcends motorcycling. That's gearhead in general. That's something that somebody that's a like a Honda fan that has Acura NSXs and collects other exotic cars. They would be into that just to say that they have that one motorcycle that has is basically a little mini V8 because it has oval pistons, right? So interesting to think about that for sure. Uh, but am I going to have that? No, I'm not going to. I'd be so sad because again, that bike didn't perform very well. It wasn't that fast. It was just, it was called the never ready because they, they rumored it for years and years and years, but then they, it took forever to come out. Once it came out, it was just kind of blah. It wasn't horrible, but it wasn't an RC 30, <laughs> right? It wasn't fast. It wasn't a race bike. And you had to do, if you were going to go fast, when it, what are you going to do? Get somebody to make some pistons for you? Build the engine? No. All right. That's too weird. And it was too valuable because I think they were selling at 50 grand. That would be interesting to find out. How much, how much did they sell for? There was like a few of them that I knew. Well, that's the research I need to do for that story. Yeah. That, that's an interesting thing. So I go, this is a very collectible bike. Here you are. Right. And Augustas. There's a few of them out there that are probably pretty collectible. Uh, the Serie Oro original 750s that were magnesium this and, and gold frame that um very rare I, I would imagine that those probably will be uh, valuable the envy augusta senna's maybe not so much but there's there's not many of those ducati senna's the the senna edition which was gray with the red wheels of the 916 that's that's a rare one god geez, we should definitely be interesting to see your article i'd love to you know we could just list off what are some special bikes and where do you rate it? It's almost like you should rate them from one to ten on collectability, or look out where are they at. Maybe I don't know. It'd be interesting to see how you end up formulating that article, how you want to, to speak to it. All right, are we about done with this uh, this train of thought? Yeah, I, I think I was going to wrap it up. My my all time pick, modern bike yeah. that'll be collectible, Aprilia SXV five fifty five point five, because it'll be like Highlander. There's going to be only yeah. one, you know, yeah. like 20 years from now, there's going to be only one. That's, that, the, that's the one that survived. That's the they ultimate, killed all the other ones. The ultimate battle of attrition will be for that bike. <laughs> I think, is it the 550? I think it's the, the 550s 550s that blows up. Oh the, yeah. Well, the I mean, 450s they all, were okay. Eh, no, they all kind of blow up. Okay. The right. 550 for sure though, like just amazing motor should never been given to the public. Yeah. It's a sad thing. Cause it could have. You know, with just a certain amount of tweaks or just a little bit of adjustments, they probably could have made it better. But for 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 street use, for for getting to the general public, but I don't know, that's pretty tough to do a 
I mean, that was a very trick engine. Very oh my god, engine. so so cool. So and that and that's I, mean, I say it tongue in cheek and I'm making a joke out of it, but I'm, I'm like semi serious about it. We're like, oh yeah, very cool machine, very cool engine. There's not going to be a lot of them because one, there wasn't that many produced. Two, how many are going to be alive? You know, how many are alive now? Like, because I, I look at like the cycle, like when Supermoto gets popular again, like yeah, ten sure. years from now, sure, then that'll be the time. Talk to Nathan Verdugo about that. You know, he raced off road. Uh, the the 450 version of oh, that. I didn't know that. You should talk to him next time you have a chat with him. It's a really interesting story because I didn't, I didn't really know much about it. But I, I was like, when we had the conversation, we were talking about what he had done. This is a guy that is the, he's the current PR PR guy for yeah Ducati for Ducati, uh, and he had done a lot with the, uh, with the with Aprilia uh, as an off road racer. The RXV 450. Yeah. yeah. So cool, cool stories. And yeah, he, he has a lot of interesting things to say. I mean, they're weird bikes for sure. Oh, totally weird. Not pinnacle weird, but totally weird. <laughs> right. There's a few of the Aprilia's. It was a very sad thing. I was looking up recently with a friend that has a, a Haga RSV, a 2003 Haga. This is the Miele. Miele, like, right? I was like, this has got to be worth a shit ton because there's not many minutes and there, there's just not. There's less than 10 grand for that. It's like, oh, that was a bike that was 15 grand ish new. And has a pedigree. I mean, there's not very many of them, but not going for much. So I don't know if that's just the damage, the get your shit together Aprilia damage that they need to do by getting their shit together. Maybe that's the brand bringing it down. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not going to touch that with a 10-foot pole. All right, fair enough. I think I think that's that's good for now on our, our dream garages. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to chew on it some more and see. Uh, I mean, time's going to tell on this one. Sure. All right. Kickstands up. Good talk. See you out there. And just as a street bike, they're meh. Like uh, R6 would fucking eat it alive. From that era, a carbureted R6 would have been better bike. So it was kind of like meh. But holy shit, did it look good? Ben Affleck had one. Affleck. <laughs> ben Affleck. He was the bomb in fandoms, yo. I don't remember that. Is that from fucking what's. Uh, uh, Jane Silent Jane Bob. Silent, yeah. Bang. Bang. <laughs> Snoochie boochies. Snoochie boochies. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh, man. All right, let's get rolling. Let's do this. Let's do it. Let's, let's do another podcast. Let's do it. All right, here we go. Gotta get psyched up. Gotta get psyched up. Here we go. Hello, I'm Jensen Beeler. No, I'm Quentin Wilson. <laughs>